Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Once again, we are going to spend some time in Luke chapter 10. So if you want to find your way there in your Bible or if you're iTech on your Bible app, whatever app that happens to be, Luke 10, verses 25 to 37. I'd like to read that to you. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we turn now to your word, we pray that your spirit will illuminate it to us and bring it to home to our hearts and lives in a way that causes us to have a divine encounter with you, the one, the true, the living God that brings us to faith and to trust and to obedience. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Life is full of questions, isn't it? All kinds of questions that seemingly come from every direction. There are important questions, and then there are the non-important questions. There are some questions that parents dread. Questions like, where do babies come from, Daddy? Or, Mom, can I get my driver's permit? Every flashcard held up before us contains a question. What is two plus two? Every exam in school is filled with questions multiple choice questions, true and false questions, essay questions. And every road trip has questions. Which road to take, when to stop for gas, and the one we all know is coming from the back seat, how much longer? There are deep questions that are difficult to answer or whose answers are not particularly satisfying. Why am I suffering? Why do bad things happen? Why is there war? Some of us may be asking these kinds of questions this week. The answers to those 
can be found in scripture and principle, but may still remain a mystery this side of heaven. Then there are the important life-changing personal questions. What do I want to be when I grow up? What is really important to me? Will you marry me? That last question was an easy question for Robin and me. We met when we were 18, and we just knew. It was more an obvious conclusion to a discussion than a question popped. We were engaged five weeks after we met, and that was more than 50 years ago. So the hard question was the one this 18-year-old with no job and no career had to ask her ex-military father, can I marry your daughter? As a lay ruling elder and not a pastoral teaching elder, I don't get the opportunity to preach that often. Maybe I'll be asked to fill in at one of the mission churches in a couple weeks. Maybe I won't be asked again for another year. The opportunity is totally out of my control. So as I was thinking and praying about what to share with you today, this question came to mind. What if today were to be the last opportunity I have to be here with you? If that were the case, what is the most important question that needs to be addressed? And that's where my mind's been these past couple weeks, and that's what God has laid on my heart, today's passage. And it's a familiar passage to most of us. This passage includes the most important question one could ever ask. Verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put to him, that is Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Let's get on the right slide here. Here Luke recounts a story of Jesus in some sort of public setting. We don't know what. And an attorney rises to ask him a question. Now this attorney is not merely curious. He's not wanting to learn something new. No, his purpose is to cross-examine Jesus, to discredit Jesus' teaching. He's putting Jesus to the test. Now for more than 20 years, my job required me to testify regularly in court as an expert witness. And let me tell you from personal experience, when you're on the witness stand and a cross-examining attorney asks you questions, you better be careful. A cross-examining attorney's sole purpose in asking me questions is to poke holes in my testimony, to attempt to point out technical errors or failures in logic or bias in my opinion. And yes, the attorney works very hard at making me look bad, confused, incompetent, and even stupid all to discredit me before the judge and the jury and therefore invalidate my testimony. So what does Jesus do when he's asked what the law says must be done to gain eternal life by this attorney? He says to the attorney, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He turns the question back to the attorney. Jesus says, no, you're the lawyer, you're the expert, You're the teacher of the law. You tell me what you believe to be the law says one needs to do to inherit life. The attorney then actually goes to the law. The law then, the first five books of the Bible or the Torah, that's what the law was to the Jews. And out of Deuteronomy and out of Leviticus, he quotes. I know those are everyone's favorite books of the Bible. 
The lawyer gives a two-part answer. First, he says, we are to wholly and totally love God. Verse 27, and he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. The attorney quotes the law itself. The first part of his answer to Jesus references Moses' teaching of what God commanded. You can find it in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, right after Moses had reiterated the Ten Commandments in the prior chapter. And we don't have time this morning to go back to Deuteronomy, but if you were to do so, you would observe that surrounding the commandment to wholly love God are two things, both of which stress its importance. The first is that the commandment to love God wholly should be written on our hearts and taught to our children. The second is that following the commandment will bring blessings, and by inference, not doing so will bring about disaster. And this latter reality is what we find in the rest of the story of Israel in the Old Testament. We read of disaster throughout the time of the judges and then during the time of kings, which eventually led to a divided nation, both of which were eventually overthrown despite the many warnings of the prophets. It is a centuries-long story of only very occasional obedience to this great commandment to love God holy, but more often we read of Israel's failure to do so. And in the end, what was a blessed nation, established and protected by God, devolved into a small remnant of only part of the southern nation of Judah, returning to Jerusalem after defeat and exile. This is why Paul wrote to the church in Rome in chapter 3, starting in verse 19. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in this, that is God's sight, since, though, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You see, we are all unable to keep the law on our own. We are no more capable or competent to do so than the Israelites of the Old Testament. If we cannot keep the law, then we cannot keep its most important commandment, the one the lawyer reiterated here, to wholly love God. And if we cannot keep this commandment, we cannot inherit eternal life. R.C. Sproul, one of my favorite theologians and writers, wrote this. There is no one, not one person, who has kept the force of this commandment for the last five minutes, let alone for their entire lives. For to say that you love God with all of your mind and all of your soul and all of your strength and all of your heart really is to say that you never sin because it would be impossible to sin if you love God in this way. So where does that leave us? Are we stuck? Have we been given an impossible task? Is eternal life really unattainable? The answer is a resounding no. We are not in a no-win situation because we are not merely left to our own efforts. Fact is, John, in one of his epistles, 1 John 4.19 wrote that we love because God first loved us. This here is the gospel. Gospel means good news. So this is the good news. This is the one thing, the most important thing I could ever tell you. It is more meaningful, more powerful, more life-changing than any other single thing I could tell you. God loves us. He loves me, and he loves you. 
And it is only because God first loved us that we can truly love him as we are commanded to. Otherwise, we're incapable of the love necessary to comply with the law. But this begs the question, how does God love us? Paul continues in Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It is only through God's love and grace that we are justified. We are redeemed. We are saved from the separation that God, from God that sin creates. You see, God's first love has been most evidenced to us on the cross. It is on the cross, Peter wrote, that Jesus bore our sins. He took the hit for us. He accepted the punishment we deserve because of the sin. Because God first loved us, Jesus paid the penalty for our sin and reconciled us back to himself. Our fellowship has been restored and our destiny has been eternally altered to one of life and not one of death. This is indeed good news. The good news of God's love for us, always for me, comes back to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What could be any more important to say to you today other than that God loves you and only because of that expression of that love through Jesus can you find eternal life? But the lawyer doesn't stop there. He continues with another observation. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verses 27 and 28. And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he, that is Jesus, said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. The lawyer again references the law and says, not only are we to love God wholly, just as it was first required centuries before, but we are also to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Where does the lawyer get this from? Again, it comes right from the law. He's referencing Leviticus, chapter 19, something I'm sure you read just recently. That chapter, that section of the law, is part of a longer discourse about our relationship and responsibility to each other. That includes starting in verse 17. Oh, I guess I don't have it on a slide. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There it is in black and white. And Moses finishes with God saying, I am the Lord your God. You see, the Old Testament law not only speaks to our relationship to God, but our relationship to each other, to our neighbors. This lawyer knew the law and he knew it well. So Jesus responds, you're right. If you do this, that is love God wholly and love your neighbors yourself, you will have eternal life. Let me ask you this. How is it you want to be loved? That shouldn't be a hard question, should it? Ultimately, we all want to be loved and to feel loved. What does that look like? Well, here are some suggestions 
and we could sit here and come up with a longer list, I'm sure. We want to be told that we're loved. We want to be respected to feel a sense of worth. We want to be protected. We want to have our failings overlooked to be shown forgiveness, grace, and mercy when we screw up. And we want to be better off because of that love. So if these things are expressions of how we want to be loved, according to Jesus, this then is how we should love our neighbors. But let me ask you a harder question. And it's the one the lawyer asked Jesus. Who is my neighbor? Why did the lawyer ask this? Does he not know who his neighbors are? No, it's because he was attempting to justify himself, to argue that he qualified for eternal life. In his role as a lawyer and a scribe, he was responsible for correctly teaching the law and practicing the law. And I'm sure he was ready to respond to Jesus with many examples of how he fulfilled the law as outlined in Leviticus amongst his more educated, upper-class Jewish neighbors, those he had great affinity with. But instead, Jesus answers him with a story, a story most people are familiar with, the story of the Good Samaritan. And this is how it goes. A man was walking from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, that's about an 18-mile walk, or pretty much a full day's walk. And while it may not be obvious to us, it was obvious to the lawyer that this man was Jewish. He was, after all, traveling from one city in Israel to another city in Israel. Unfortunately, along the way, he got robbed, and in the process was beat up. They even took his clothes and left him alongside the roadway for dead. So he was left in pretty bad shape. Now, I wrote this last week, long before last weekend's invasion of Israel by Hamas. So thinking and imagining this event is not only more difficult, but the contrast is ever so more glaring, as we shall see. According to Jesus, three people walked by this poor guy, a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. Sounds like the beginning of a joke, but it's not. The first two, the priest and the Levite, simply walked past, making wide berth by crossing over to the other side of the roadway. They wanted nothing to do with the situation. The third, the Samaritan, stopped and held the guy. The Samaritan took him to an inn and prepaid two days' room and board. That's what a denarius represents. Asking the innkeeper to help the injured man, and if there was any money owed, he would stop and make the innkeeper whole as he traveled back. Let's look for a moment a little more closely at what the Samaritan did. First, the Samaritan had compassion. He saw the need and he responded to it internally, emotionally, and instinctively. On more than one occasion in the Gospels, we are told of Jesus observing people and having compassion on them, whether he was addressing their spiritual needs or their physical needs. And several times throughout the letters to the churches, the writers call for believers to exhibit compassion. You see, the Bible teaches that compassion is not an option. Second, he went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. The Samaritan took care of this man's immediate physical needs. You may wonder why he poured oil and wine. In those days, these were both thought to have healing effects. And the Samaritan was willing to use his own supply to help this man. Third, he set him up on his own animal. 
the Samaritan had made further sacrifices to help this man. The Samaritan had traveled with an animal, riding it or using it to transport goods, we're not told. But either way, the Samaritan either gave up his goods or gave up his ride for the benefit of the wounded man. He took on discomfort for the benefit of the man's comfort. Fourth, he took him to an inn and took care of him. The Samaritan made a commitment, not just a token transaction. He went out of his way, both in terms of time and direction, to care for the wounded man. He did not simply offer a prayer or make a small donation on a first century version of a GoFundMe page. No, he changed his schedule. He rearranged his plans to help this man. He committed his, to his compassion for this wounded man. Fifth and finally, he made sure the man was taken care of, coming out of his own pocket to do so in an open-ended way. Instead of being closed-fisted, the Samaritan was open-handed about his care for this man. He ensured the man was taken care of, even when the Samaritan had to leave. And he came out of pocket to do so, with no indication that he was limiting his commitment to the man's recovery, at least in terms of cost to him. So the compassion Jesus calls us to involves much more than either sympathy or empathy. It involves action and it involves sacrifice. But to fully understand Jesus' point, it's important to know not only what these three people did, but who they were. First, there was the priest. It was a Jewish priest. A priest is one who officiated over Jewish religious life in those days. And the high priest was the one who went into the Holy of Holies in the temple once a year to offer certain sacrifices to God. The priests were as close to God as one could get. They played the role of an intermediary between God and his people. They were God's representatives. The second person who passes by is a Levite. A Levite is one who performs non-priestly functions in public worship at the time. They may have been musicians or temple officers, officers, judges, or temple guardians, but they played a role in the Jewish worship of God. They led people into worship, if you will. These were the people who were most committed to the faith. Then there was the Samaritan who stopped to help. Samaritans were basically half-Jews. They were part of the northern kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament that was conquered by Assyria, assimilated into pagan Assyrian life and culture, and never returned to the rightful Old Testament worship of Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel. Consequently, the Jews hated the Samaritans more than they hated the Gentiles because the Samaritans made what the Jews believed to be an invalid hereditary and faith claim to the God of Israel. And in return, the Samaritans' disdain for the Jews was just as strong. We learn about this a little bit in John's story about Jesus and the woman at the well. Here's how the story starts out in John chapter 4. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you would you ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. The answer to the lawyer's question about who is my neighbor then is this. Love everyone, even those you hate the most. And love them like you want to be loved. I want to dig a little deeper this morning into the question of who is my neighbor. Let me suggest 
and solely for the purpose of discussion, categorizing neighbors two ways. First, your neighbor is your brother and sister in Christ. How do I love my brother and sister in Christ? What does the Bible tell us about that? Well, there are many verses that address this issue, that talk about loving one another. And here's a short list. John 13, 34. John 15, 1. Romans 12, 9 and 10. Romans 13, 8. 1 Corinthians 16, 14. Galatians 5, 13. Ephesians 4, 2. I know I didn't put these up on the screen. Philippians 2, 3 and 4. Colossians 3.14, 1 Thessalonians 3.12, Hebrews 13.1, 1 Peter 1.22, 1 Peter 2.17, 1 Peter 4.8, and 1 John 4.11. I think it's important to notice that essentially every letter written to the church by the apostles makes this point. We are to love each other. Let's look at just these two as an example. Love one another in Romans 12, 9 and 10. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And then Colossians three fourteen, And above all these, that is all of Paul's prior commandments regarding the relationships to believers in the Colossian church, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The Bible leaves little doubt and no wiggle room to not love our fellow believers. And let me suggest that the Bible gives us a key to loving one another in the church. It's by building up one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 Therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you were doing. Or Ephesians 4.29 Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Or Romans 14, 19. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do you see the trend here? I could reference many other verses that run along similar lines. You see, when we were building up one another, we were discipling one another. If you love your brother and sister, you will participate in discipleship, growing together in Christ, working out your salvation together, as Paul wrote to the Philippian church. Discipleship is more than coming to church and hearing a sermon, although that is good. It is more than reading and learning scripture, although that is important. It is more than simply fellowship, although that helps build relationships. No, we are to love each other when we encourage each other to good works, to ministry, to obedience to God's calling in our life, whatever that may be. There is great joy in doing ministry together, great encouragement when we study God's word and pray together, and great glory to God when the church works as a functioning body, as Paul analogizes to the church several times in his letters. Let me put an explanation point on this by quoting Proverbs 27, 17. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Loving each other makes us all better and brings glory to God. So we can define loving our neighbors in part as loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. But the story of the Good Samaritan says there is more, much, much more. 
Who else might be our neighbors? Our neighbors are also everyone else, especially those you dislike. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we all know Samaritans. There are people we just dislike for whatever reason. Maybe it is their character, maybe it's their politics, maybe it's their behavior. But Jesus doesn't seem to give us an out. He doesn't identify people we shouldn't love. How then do I love everyone else? Well, Jesus talks about that at the Sermon on the Mount. But before we get there, at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the last thing Jesus said to the disciples, making disciples of all nations. Luke reiterates this in the beginning of the book of Acts when he quotes Jesus as saying, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. How better, how more fully could we possibly love others than pointing them to eternal life? This is the answer to the most important question. And we're not talking methodology here. We're talking about purpose. If we truly loved others as ourselves, we would want them to know the answer to this most important question, wouldn't we? So we must share the gospel. The second thing we need to do is live the gospel. Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 13, You were the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Jesus uses the example of salt. Salt is both a seasoning and a preservative, and he calls us to be the same. We are to be salty. We are to live lives that make the world a better place. We are to season a broken world with the salt of the truth of the gospel lived out in our lives. As Jesus made so clear on so many occasions when he chastised the religious leaders of his day as hypocrites, we can preach the gospel all day long, but if we do not live the gospel, those who hear do not see its power or its beauty. In the same way, Jesus uses another analogy, that of light. He continues on in verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father, your Father who is in heaven. What Jesus is illustrating here is that our light is our love for God and our love for each other, often expressed as good works. We know our good works earn us no standing in heaven. We've already talked about that. But our good works are evidence of our good standing in heaven. Our good works are a response to and a reflection of God's love and point others to the good news of the gospel. Observers of the light should be saying, now I see and I want some of that. That's what gives glory to God, as Jesus says here. And Peter puts this idea in a more direct context for the church. He writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, but you are a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. As a redeemed, believers are different. We are chosen. We are a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. And for what purpose have we been chosen? To proclaim the availability of God's mercy. Peter goes on about how we do this. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We are called to fight the good fight. As believers, we become citizens of the kingdom of God. That is our primary and most important citizenship. Yet, while on earth, we hold dual citizenships. We are also citizens of where we live today. What theologians call the in-between time. We are between the already, but not yet. We are already saved. Our salvation is secure, but we are not fully free from the sin nature that infects us all and makes the world such a troubled place. Peter says that despite our tendency to not be salt and light, we ought to seek to help to keep our conduct honorable. Others can say what they want about us, but the truth should be that we live like who we claim to be and how we are called to be. Over time, the church hasn't always done a very good job of this, has it? Even the most casual study of church history shows this, but it seems particularly relevant today as we set pastors and other church leaders on pedestals only to gleefully watch them fall and observe the church fighting amongst itself over things of this world. But here's the rub. Our neighbors observe our unloving behavior. Let me give you one example. A sample Twitter post, or I guess now it's an X post, took me about 60 seconds to find this on my feed. I've removed all the names because they're not relevant to my point. And I don't know whether you can read that smaller print. But this is all public information posted on Twitter for anyone to see. One Christian leader simply posted an announcement of his podcast interviewing another well-known Christian. Look at the comments. I didn't put the commentators' names on here, but I clicked through and they all claimed to be Christians. A couple of them were even pastors. There were a lot of these types of comments some with language that I don't use and I wouldn't put on the screen in church. But look at some of these quotes. Did church leader one convert to Christianity? Like you're doing Christianity a favor or something. You are not redeemed. You're a Christian, you fooled me. Neither of you are Christians. Oh look, two false teachers supporting each other. That's what the world sees the church. That's what they see. What crime did these vile remarks against two believers by other believers? What was their crime? Did they promote some her heretical theological views? Were they openly committing to sinful behavior? The answer is no. Their crime was that during the last election, they did not support the apparent presidential candidate of choice. That was their only complaint. Now we have the freedom in this country to express our views and a biblical obligation to responsibly discharge our civic duties. 
I'm not suggesting otherwise. But what does this exchange tell any reader about the faith community? What do unbelievers learn here about followers of Jesus? Do they see the love that we're called to have to God and to our neighbors? You see, it can be deceptively easy to let the world seize in our fellowship rather than the other way around, as Jesus calls us to. We figuratively throw stones at each other all the time. We see it daily on social media, Christians attacking one another on issues that are at best not core to our faith and at worst have nothing to do with our faith. Churches split up, faithful friends block each other on social media and delete contact records on our phones. Ministries fall by the wayside because being co-laborers in Christ is less important than being right. Jesus calls us to be better than that. Yield to the Holy Spirit and the teachings of the Word of God. Be salt and light for God's glory and be fitting your citizenship in the kingdom of God. Here we are in Goodwill Beacon. We have neighbors. I mean, we actually have neighbors, literally, all right around us here in Beacon. Here we are, a local church, part of the body of Christ, fellowshipping and worship and ministering together this morning. Yet, as a group, we have been wandering for four years looking for a home. But we have one now, one with real neighbors, neighbors that need the good news, just like we all need the good news. So for you, what is the answer to the most important question? The lawyer was right, and Jesus confirmed it. Love God wholly. Where is your citizenship? To whom is your allegiance? People will fail you. Things will rust away. Good works viewed as earning favor with God get you nowhere. Only a personal relationship with God that comes through Jesus and empowered by the indwelling Holy Spirit blesses us with the ability to bask in God's love for eternity and to love him wholly in return. Love our neighbor as we want to be loved and for God's glory. Like the good Samaritan, loving our neighbor comes at a price. It is not a casual relationship or a mere transaction, although those might be good starting points for a love that both shares and lives the truth of God's love. Is it easy to love our neighbor? No. It involves sacrifice and a resetting of priorities, just as the Samaritan did on that dusty road those many years ago. Will we get it right? Not all the time. That is the nature of the human condition. While we are saved from the penalty of sin, we still live with the presence of sin. That's why Paul refers in his letter to the Roman church of the battle with sin in each of us. But with God's grace and the empowering Holy Spirit within us, we now have the capacity to love our neighbor, and we ought to do so. If I only get this opportunity to tell you this one thing, this most important thing, if I never get the opportunity to stand here before you again, this is it. Everything else good follows. Everything else bad cannot hurt us. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your love, an incomprehensible love, a love that we cannot fully grasp or understand, but one that you ask us to accept by faith. 
We know on the other side of heaven we will fully understand and grasp that love and feel that love. We pray, Lord, that as we respond to that love by loving you, that we will live out that love in lives that glorify you, that honor you, that respect our neighbors, that make us want to love them as much as we love ourselves. And what more could we want for ourselves, Lord, than eternal life? Everything else pales by comparison. So help us, Lord, through our words and through our actions to speak the truth of your love and to live the truth of your love. We ask this in your name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.